0: the cold dive with me, Lucas, aka Kirby. This is the place for musings on cryptography, technology, and t-shirts with the word t-shirt on them. So to kick out this episode, I'd like to talk a bit about the recent SIDH breakage. Uh, A little bit bad not to at least mention it. So, SIDH for super singular isochthy Diffie Hellman was one of the candidates that didn't make it, didn't get standardized in the third round of the NIST standardization process, which I talked about in the previous episode. But it was a potential fallback candidate for the fourth round. But this weekend, a paper came out, which actually I should cite the authors of. So the paper is An Efficient Key Recovery Attack on SIDH by Wouter Kastryk and Thomas Dekru both from KU Leuven, which I should mention has a good cryptography group. Lots of cool papers coming from that university. And so basically that paper came with some scripts and... It's sort of been independently verified at this point enough so that we can say that SIDH and its current form is definitively broken. You can recover keys in several hours on a laptop, beating the previous record of In a Weekend for Rainbow, which was a scheme not related to isogenies, but which was also famously broken that time before the end of the standardization process. Although I guess it's sort of not Really ended with this fourth round still ongoing. So it was a bit of a a shocker. I think someone mentioned that it's the most liked tweet by AACR, which uh, runs a Twitter account which posts all the preprints for cryptography. So definitely a lot of buzz to the point where it felt odd not to mention it. The only thing is that I don't, in all honesty, really understand the attack. It's. Isogeny stuff is pretty complicated to begin with, and it just goes way over my head. All I can say is that it looks pretty bad, and it seems that while well, there may be ways to correct it, it's definitely a very big blow to the scheme. As far as other schemes using isogenies in general, well, they seem to be safe for now. The thing with attacks that's a more general comment is that they only really get better. So you sort of run into the issue that while well, other schemes may not be directly affected by this attack, maybe this opens the door to more research which finds other related attacks. It doesn't seem like there's anything on the horizon, but you never really know, do you? And, you know, there's some fud around whether or not it brings into a question the standardization process because an attack was found so late. One argument you can make is that, well, without all of the effort of the standardization effort and all of the teams working on trying to find these attacks, maybe this one wouldn't have been found because there's just not really any any uh, work on doing cryptanalysis of isogenies up to now. Another argument is that it's sort of odd that there was so much effort and this didn't get found until so late. It's, it's difficult to really weigh in on this issue because it's just so it's so uncertain, you know. You can put a lot of work into crypto cryptanaly- analyzing something and just nothing comes out of it. It's not it, it's not something where you're putting a bit of effort and you get a bit of results out. It's it's very nonlinear. You put a lot of effort in and then maybe one day something pops out or sometimes you put in a little effort and it just crumbles apart. So it's, it's 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 difficult to really weigh in one one way or the other. I tend to lean more towards the, you know, people probably wouldn't have spent enough energy to find this attack without the standardization process. But on the other hand, it is still a bit alarming that this didn't get found earlier. But sometimes that just, how uh, the cookie crumbles, isn't it? And I guess the segue towards the thing I want to talk about next is that this SID SIDH thing that got broken was a basically a cryptographic problem. And this problem was used to construct CHEMS, the idea being that uh, this key-encapsulation mechanism you construct with the underlying primitive would be difficult to break in terms of figuring out what key is hidden inside of the ciphertext so long as the underlying problem is hard to break. And sort of I mentioned this because the next topic I want to talk about is what i like to call sort of a hierarchy or like a taxonomy of different things in cryptography uh, the reason i want to talk about this is that i've sort of developed like a little way of thinking about what different constructions in cryptography are and where they fit because there's sort of a lot of moving parts to cryptography so at, at the very top really what matters is you have sort of applications so applications are literally things like, for example, Signal. Signal is an application which uses cryptography pervasively to provide privacy to its users. And so there you really don't entirely care about what cryptography you're using, you just care that it's enough to guarantee the security you'd like to provide. So you have some kind of threat model of what adversaries can do. So in Signal's case, you can sort of assume that the app code is secure, or at least hasn't been tampered with, but the server might be eavesdropping and try to to figure out what people are saying. So you want internet encryption so that as people are messaging each other, they don't have to trust that the server isn't reading their messages. So that's sort of a threat model, and you sort of want whatever cryptographic stuff you use to to guarantee that that these security properties are not broken. So that's sort of an application. And then the, the layer below that is what I like to call a protocol. So a protocol is sort of like a way of composing different cryptography together to create sort of a set of interactions. So for example, in, in Signal you have a protocol which defines how you set up an initial key to use for messaging. So this is sort of a key exchange protocol and it uses several constructions underneath as part of a part of its thing. Perhaps a better example of a protocol in the context of Signal would be the the messaging protocol, which is more elaborate and involves sort of a much uh, wider session. You're doing the messaging protocol maybe over several weeks, you know, without reinitializing it, whereas the key exchange is very quick. And so this messaging protocol involves a lot of cryptography, but there's also sort of a lot of application logic mixed in as well, you know, managing which key you need to use to decrypt messages and sort of maybe even waiting for the other person to send a message with timeouts and stuff like that. Other examples of protocols might be stuff that's very, very cryptographic. So stuff like multi-party computation or threshold signatures. So you might have a threshold signature protocol, which uses a lot of cryptography, but the end result is that a group of people can come together and sign a message without any of them having the private key. You might need a lot of of cryptography to accomplish this because it's kind of tricky. But otherwise, you have this elaborate protocol. And then I guess the, the level underneath is what I like to call schemes. And so schemes are like cryptographic instructions which accomplish a very small thing. So one example is encryption. And encryption in like the very tight sense of it. So for example, using AES or ChaCha20 to like encrypt just a blob of bytes. And you can contrast this with like signal where well, you may want to specify like a way to encrypt more complicated data like images or, or stuff like that. So at the protocol level, you're sort of worrying about how to format your data, whereas at the scheme level, you just, you just have bytes or even bits. And so the scheme is really just concerned purely about the cryptography, no business logic at all. And it's a very small amount of functionality. So for example, maybe a zero-knowledge proof or a very specific statement might be something you'd you'd classify as a scheme or a chem. Chem, that's a great example of a scheme. So, a chem based on and super uh, singular isogeny Diffie-Hellman, that would be a scheme. Whereas SIDH, the isogeny thing that got broken, that would be an example of a of a problem. So a problem isn't really something that you can use to do cryptography directly but it's sort of something that's supposed to be hard, and you can use that to build cryptography on top of it. So I can build schemes which assume that certain problems are difficult. For example, with the SADH scheme as a Kim, you assume that the SADH problem is hard. At least if I, I'm not, not an expert on that, so I, I can't speak to that too much. But for example, if you're doing uh, public key encryption with elliptic curves, sort of your problems are, are those related to the hardness of, of the curves. Whereas your scheme is doing something like encryption or doing a chem, making use of those problems. So if you want to set it up so that if the chem can be broken, then so can the underlying problem. And you may have a lot of different schemes which share the same underlying problem. And so this problem gets a lot of scrutiny. And you don't need to actually trust the schemes themselves. You just need to trust that the problem is hard. And otherwise, trust that the proof works out because you sort of prove that breaking the big scheme is as hard as breaking the small problem. And between problems and schemes, you have what I like to call primitives. And this is more of like a software thing, but sometimes you need little gadgets which don't form a coherent scheme in and of themselves, but are useful to build schemes. So one example of this might be an elliptic curve. For example, the Ristretto curve or Curve 25519 or SecP256K1, stuff like that. So you can implement a curve as like a little abstraction and this curve can be used for many different schemes. So you can use your elliptic curve for key exchanges, for chems, public key encryption, for signatures, etc. So all those little things I've just listed are examples of schemes. Whereas the primitive is the elliptic curve. So primitive, it's basically a cryptographic gadget you can use for different tools. Well, it's a tool you can use for different tasks but it may not do anything cryptographically interesting by itself. And usually your primitives rely on some kind of problem. And primitives are more of a sort of a software thing because oftentimes you can you can provide these primitives as, as a coherent software package. For example, Rust has this excellent great free Rashredo, and I've used it in many different projects. But in and of itself, like you you have to sort of know what you're doing to use it as part of cryptography because it's not, you have to sort of know how to, how to build a scheme using the underlying primitive, it's not sort of a package you can use by by itself. So I guess to summarize before sort of explaining why I think this just taxonomy is useful, so at the bottom level you have these problems, which are soon to be hard, and then on top of these problems you, you build primitives like elliptic curves, and maybe encryption block ciphers like AES and stuff like that, although block ciphers aren't usually based on a hard problem, And these primitives aren't useful of themselves for tasks, but you can build schemes out of them. And schemes basically accomplish small cryptographic tasks, like encrypting a bit of uh, a small message, or maybe creating a signature, doing public key encryption, stuff like that. And then using multiple schemes, you can create more elaborate protocols, which might accomplish a complicated task like creating a signature by having multiple parties collaborate, or maybe creating a digital transaction or something like that, or even a big messaging protocol. And then on top of protocols, you can have applications. So maybe you have a messaging protocol inside of your app, and your app also allows you to make digital payments and whatnot. So you're tying different cryptographic protocols together in order to accomplish something interesting for end users and provide the security that you want to provide. And the reason I think this taxonomy is interesting is First of all, it sort of helps capture a lot of different moving parts of cryptography because often we sort of talk about all of these different objects sort of as if they're on the same kind of thing, but really I think having them organized into this hierarchy is, is, is a good way of thinking about it. It also helps clarify what the role of standards and software libraries can be. For example, standardizing the way I think about it is, the higher you get towards the application layer, the the less useful standards are. So standardizing an entire application is going to be very silly because you're you're going to change the application. Imagine if NIST standardized the entire Signal app down to like the layout of buttons. That would be absurd, right? If you want to change the the font, you'd have to change the the NIST standard. That'd be stupid. There's so many orthogonal concerns to the cryptography that standardizing it is is just you know preposterous. So instead, you might wanna standardize the protocol. That's, that's sort of interesting, but it's it, it, it's okay when the protocol can be used in sort of this this opaque or black box way. So with TLS, which is used for encrypting browser traffic, this works pretty well because it, you, you set up a, an encrypted stream and then you can do sort of whatever you want over that stream. You could have an, even another protocol that does other encryption if you want to. So in that way, it's, it's very composable but there are other protocols which don't really compose in this way. For example, with threshold signature protocols, you often need to have a kind of awareness of how they work. For example, like they may only work for certain signature schemes, right? And so you need to make sure that like, it's compatible with the signature, signature scheme you want to use or the signature format you want to use somewhere else. And so these kind of frictions make it sort of harder to standardize a protocol. There's, for example, ongoing work on standardizing Frost, and you know, standardizing something like Frost is harder than standardizing a curve or an encryption scheme, because there's just so many more working parts and choices you can make on the protocol, and it's it's hard to satisfy everyone everyone's needs. For example, one thing I don't think they're going to be standardizing in Frost is uh, key derivation. So, what this is is that, if you look at, say, Bitcoin is sort of the one that, that kind of pioneered doing this in the signature context, or at least as a common format that people use. So the idea is that you have this sort of root key and you can derive new keys from that. And the way you derive a key is you hash the public key and that gives you sort of a scalar which you can add to your private key. And what's interesting is that even in the threshold signature context, you can still do this kind of derivation because you share your, your secret key linearly. So each person has a share and you add them all together to get the private key that nobody knows entirely but which is sort of shared by the group collectively and sort of if you do this additive derivation since it's just adding another factor to it it's sort of easy to do this as a group and sort of derive related keys and this is interesting because it sort of allows you to maintain a big wallet of a bunch of different keys we only having to remember root secret so if you had to do with the keygen protocol for like every new key in your wallet, that'd be very expensive because you sort of want to avoid doing MPC protocols as much as you can because it involve talking to a bunch of different people over the network and things can fail, et cetera. So if you can do things locally, that's a lot better. And anyhow, this is sort of an aspect where you sort of need to be aware of how the protocol works to sort of be able to implement. And with Frost, I don't think they're going to be standardizing at that aspect, which makes sense but it's possible that they might sort of step on people's toes and and make it difficult to, to do. I don't think that's going to happen cuz process is pretty simple, but it's it's sort of an example of how standardizing a protocol really ossifies it and it sort of removes a bit of flexibility you have in modifying it. And if you get to schemes, I think that's a lot better to standardize because if you have a scheme like a cam, it's it can be used in a very opaque way. It has very clear responsibilities. You know, a chem has a very clear security definition for what it needs to do. It has a very clear task. You know, I need to create a ciphertext which hides a key, same for signatures. It's, it's very clear what they need to do. And so it's easy to create a scheme which can be standardized in a way that sort of suits many different use cases. And that's also the value of standards is the more people that would like to use a standard or want to accomplish something, the more value there is in a standard because it sort of helps keep these people on the same page and allows different applications to be interoperable. Whereas with protocols and applications, the higher you go up the stack, the less interoperability you might end up having. For example, Signal may, may not want to interoperate with other, other applications. And you know your protocol may not really work in different contexts, whereas a scheme can work in many different contexts. Then even below that where I think it's even better to standardize our primitives because we use in so many different contexts. it's just great to have a reference. I don't know if shreddo has been standardized, but there are other curves which have been obviously standardized going all the way back to the to the NIST curves. And so I think that's very useful because by standardizing a curve, for example, you can sort of unlock standardization for a lot of schemes for sort of free. you know even if the, the form of the scheme isn't exactly standardized, well, you sort of apply a standard recipe using your primitive, and that helps you a lot. And by standardizing a primitive, you can also create good library implementations of it, which helps a lot of people. And now standardizing a problem doesn't really make sense, because I didn't think I go, went over this, but a problem is more of like a theoretical object. You can't really use a problem, it's more sort of, sort of a bedrock you build proofs on top of to show that your primitives and schemes are secure, and ultimately protocols. And I guess after talking about how each layer interacts with standardization, I think it might be interesting to talk about software. So obviously applications are usually distributed as software. I mean, it's sort of a bit absurd to talk about an application without talking about software. So Signal is an app you can download, right? So obviously an application is a very good layer to have software in because I I just provide you an app, you can use it. There's no thinking about cryptography whatsoever. With protocols, it's actually funnily enough with an application it's easier to provide as software because you don't need to use it at all in terms of the cryptography use it for like the the features it has as an end user and so you really don't care about any of the details whereas with the protocol you do care about the details because you want to use it in a different context and that's what makes software that provides protocols quite tricky in fact i'll I'll get to this a bit later because i have a lot more to say on this but For now, I'll just say that protocols and software are tricky because there's a lot of communication that needs to happen between different parties, and handling that as a library is tricky. So it boils down to that, really. So with an application, you don't have any control over how it's executed, but you don't need any control. With protocols, you have little control over how it's executed, but you do need control, and that's what makes it tricky. But then below that, with primitives and schemes, it's a lot better for software. So with schemes, you can actually make software that's a lot harder to abuse, because with a scheme, it's a, there's a very clear security boundary. If I have an encryption scheme, it's, it's sort of obvious what needs to happen. So I can provide an encryption scheme in a completely opaque way, where like, I have an interface which is as difficult to use as possible. So for example, for encryption, one interface I like is just randomized encryption. You can't provide nonces at all. You just, you have a key, and you encrypt, and it gives you random ciphertext. And of course, it's an AEAD mode too, so it's authenticated by default. So no choice about that either. So you can provide this as, a, as this nice little library and it becomes easy to use without really thinking about the primitive. And internally you just care about the the scheme in terms of its security properties and that's very nice. And this is what I'd sort of call a high-level library. It's sort of a collection of schemes that you can sort of use out of the box and you as the end user you just need to know about the security properties so you still need to be somewhat security minded because you need to know which scheme is correct to use in different situations and whether or not the security properties of a scheme are sufficient for your protocol or your application but nonetheless through this very clear abstraction barrier between you and the internals of the library which is why having schemes as a library is very so it's, it's a very good place to do it and Below that, you sort of have implementing primitives. So these are what I call sort of mid-level libraries. So one example of this would be the Shredder library in Rust I mentioned, part of the Dalek family of libraries. And so here, at, the primitive isn't really useful in and of itself if you're, if you're trying to get sort of a, a black box construction with certain security properties, because you have to know what cryptography to, you can do with the primitive. And you have to not mess that up either. But it's extremely useful as a mid-level library from sort of cryptographer to cryptographer, because it avoids having to write these complicated little details yourself. So if you know what you're doing at a sort of a higher scheme level construction, you avoid having to rewrite all this sort of internal primitive level logic. And that's very valuable, because primitives benefit a lot from having scrutiny in terms of security but also performance. If you get a primitive right in terms of a fast implementation, then a lot of people can benefit from that in their schemes, even if they're using very different schemes. So like with an elliptic curve, you can speed up signatures and encryption and a bunch of other stuff just by having this library that's very fast. So that's, I think, a, a very sort of almost underappreciated layer. A lot of cryptographic software at the beginning was sort of about building up these high higher level ways of abstraction. They weren't very well abstracted, but you were sort of working at the scheme level and providing implementations of different schemes. And there was less sort of work at the, at the primitive level. And in Rust, it's quite interesting because there's sort of this flourishing ecosystem of mid-level libraries. For example, like implementations of very, of specific hash functions or specific block ciphers or specific elliptic curves. And those are very useful, like, to me because often I, I'm, I'm working on sort of new schemes and I just want to, to use the primitive because I know as a cryptographer sort of what I'm doing. And I just want to get at the, at the primitives because I know how to construct schemes on top of them. As an end user, or as, as an engineer that's not so cryptography minded, it's it's less useful because you really want schemes that provide you an interface with certain security properties. Whereas a primitive, it, it's, It doesn't really provide you anything in terms of security properties. There's some links to to problems, cryptographic problems, but you really need to know like the recipes to make a, a useful scheme out of the primitives. Nonetheless, it's sort of a valuable layer to have. And what makes protocols difficult to provide as libraries is that there's no clear Abstraction barrier between you and the protocol. So, if you take the example of threshold signatures, in the protocol itself, you have to sort of send messages to other people and you have to sort of react to like the other messages. And this means that no matter what you do, you need to mix the logic inside of the library with the logic of your application. And that's very tricky. because you're switching between i'm doing cryptography stuff to i need to pass messages messages around and that's not so easy and sometimes depending on how the protocol is set up you might have sort of certain guarantees that are important for security which need to be upheld at the application layer so maybe you need to like securely broadcast some data in such a way that like everybody agrees that the data was broadcast like it's not possible to send Two different messages to two different people without them noticing and making that kind of guarantee clear to the to the application using your protocol as a library is very difficult and it's sort of inevitable that if you just trust the the application layer to to do it someone's going to make a mistake and that's going to be a problem and i still haven't figured out what's the the sort of best way to write protocols as a library it's something that I sort of encounter a lot, because a lot of interesting research that I'd like to implement is in the form of protocols, and I like to sort of provide libraries, sort of proofs of concept of how to do them. And it's difficult to provide a good library which implements a protocol. The style that I've stumbled the most on, which I think is probably the best with what we can do, is that you just sort of you provide functions which which just say, okay, well, you know, given the current state, and if you, if you feed me some messages, I'm going to give you the next state and some messages to send out and maybe with a description of how to send them like oh you need to broadcast these messages or you need to send this message to that specific person and all of the transmission code is handled by the application layer using your protocol as a library but even that that's not sort of satisfactory because as i mentioned you can have this mismatch between what the library is asking you to do and what the application ends up doing but this is sort of a general problem in software. Once you, when you have this nice black box functionality you can provide like a signature scheme or something like that, it's easy to provide it as a library because it's sort of, you give total control to the library writer to do something and it gives you a result. And it's, there's this very clear interface and it's just sort of this one query level thing. Whereas anytime you're asking a library to, to do some kind of stateful operation, for some more complex processing, which doesn't happen in a single phase, it becomes very difficult to provide that as a clean library. And, yeah. <laughs> and more on the whole protocol topic, one thing I wanted to mention was that often you have schemes which can be provided these nice abstractions and libraries, but sometimes you need to build more complicated protocols on top of the schemes. And this is where things get a lot trickier. So I sort of mentioned in passing that if you're writing an application using schemes, you sort of need to make sure that they have the protocols you need. And so I think one, one gap that ends up happening is that you jump from scheme to application without any consideration of the protocol you're building. That's sort of why I like this taxonomy because it sort of makes you realize that there's not you can't just directly use schemes and applications. Because if you do, what ends up happening is that you sort of have this protocol which describes what your application is trying to do security-wise, and describes the recipe gluing these schemes together in sort of an ad-hoc way. And if you don't explicitly think about how this protocol works in terms of its security properties, well, you might risk it not actually working. So Oftentimes, schemes end up being sort of glued in an ad-hoc way together Essentially, they don't really form a secure protocol, but this protocol isn't even really formalized or talked about in any way. It just happens to be the way the application uses schemes to do certain stuff. So this is why sometimes like people sort of say that like cryptography is magic or stuff like that, which is a topic I want to talk about someday, but probably not today. But this is why it can seem very difficult at times, because if you don't explicitly analyze the protocol in and of itself, it can seem like it's it's very difficult to, to glue the schemes together, which it is, because you have to consider how the schemes interact and whether or not they're doing what you want and whether or not in composition together, each little snippet of functionality does the big task you want to accomplish securely. And that's why I think it's, it's important for us to have First of all, to actually start formalizing, or at least talking about more explicitly what the protocols inside of our applications are doing. So this is why you know the documentation signal has is interesting because they have an explicit protocol for how their messaging system is supposed to work. And first of all, this is good because it allows you to, to at least reason about what, how this how the schemes are glued together and what they're trying to accomplish, versus just having this application where you're mixing both the cryptographic and security layers with sort of the business logic. And what's also interesting with having an explicit protocol is that people can actually prove stuff about it. So there have been several papers analyzing signals protocol, sometimes even with sort of automatic verification, using you know computer tools to, to verify properties about the protocol. And so there you can even prove that your protocol does satisfy certain security properties, assuming that the underlying schemes are secure. And that's you know really interesting because it avoids all of this ad hoc logic. Of this haphazard gluing together of schemes, because you can say, well, you know, this protocol does satisfy certain security properties, and I can prove that that's the case, you know, using either the proofread by hand, the paper, or even an automatic proof checking system. And I think that's, that's very cool, and I think that's what we should be moving towards, really. Actually talking about the protocols in our application so that we can sort of isolate the security concerns so that the application just interacts with this layer, which implements a very clear specification in terms of security properties and threat model in a way which, which is proven to work. Now, of course, you, you have, you, you're you always going to have two problems, even if you prove everything up to that layer, which is, first of all, you need to trust that the software has been written correctly. Software is inevitably going to have bugs. So if your primitives have bugs, you're going to have issues. If your schemes have bugs, you're going to have issues. And if the implementation of the protocol has bugs, you're also going to have issues. So one thing you might say is, well, we could you know, prove that the protocol, in terms of its application code, the software we've written conforms to the spec. And that would be great. And I think people have to do that in many cases. For example, there's a lot of papers on verifying TLS, right? But to, to do that kind of verification, you need a protocol specification. Which brings me to my earlier point, which is that, well, specifying the protocols that your application is trying to implement in terms of security is very important. And one thing that will always be with us, even if we have magic uh, compilers which automatically check uh, proofs and verify that code conforms to a spec, is that you could have the wrong spec. So having fancy security properties which prove that your protocol satisfies is completely useless if those are not the right properties for your application. So if I have an into an encrypted messenger, and I never prove that it actually satisfies privacy of, of the messages being sent, I mean, I can prove, for example, I could I could prove that, oh, nobody can tamper with the messages. Nobody can modify what the messages say. But that doesn't help me in terms of stipulating that nobody can read the contents of the messages. So, you can always have a mismatch between the specification and what the application needs or should have, because sometimes you think a certain security property is sufficient, but it really isn't. And the main reason that it won't be sufficient in practice is because of your threat models. So I've said this a few times, but in your threat modeling, you need to think about what the adversary can do, what the people attacking your system have access to. What they can break what you can assume to be secure or not and if the threat model is violated you could have a a pretty serious security degradation so for example if you take signal i like using signal as an example because it's, it's pretty illustrative and a lot of people listening to this podcast probably even have it downloaded on their phone so it's probably pretty evocative but if you take signal if the app is compromised as in someone can modify the source code running on your phone i mean It's very difficult to to keep security in that situation, because someone can just read what you're seeing on your screen. If you can see it with your eyes, you can also see it if you've compromised the the app entirely. But this is outside of the threat model, because in, in the threat model for Signal, you assume that the app running on your phone runs the right software. And you need to do some kind of restriction of what the adversary can do. Because if you say, well, the adversary can do everything, then you can't do anything in terms of security. Because there's just nothing you can do. The adversary can do everything. No matter what you do, he can break. There's no device you can use to do computation because everything is hacked. You're at a dead end. Alright? So you need some kind of restriction of, of the adversary's capabilities to do anything. But anytime you restrict, well, then if that that assumption gets violated in practice, you, you may have issues. So threat modeling is is very difficult. And it, it's where a lot of mismatches between the specifications of your security and the real-world security of your application come into play. So sometimes, like, with bug bounties, you know, companies will run bug bounties to try and encourage people to try and report vulnerabilities to them rather than doing bad stuff with them they say oh well you know this isn't in our threat model so we're not going to pay out any bounties but the thing is that actual attackers don't really give a damn about your threat model if it's possible to do something bad even if it's not something you accounted for they're going to do it so there's a bit of absurdity in having your bug bounty be, you know strictly tied to your threat model because really if you think about it a lot of the attacks are going to come from the parts you didn't consider. So the gaps in your threat model that you didn't think about. So if you say, oh, I only want attacks that I've thought about. I mean, what's the point of that? The, the difficult stuff is the attacks you haven't thought about. Like the recent uh, SIDH breakage, which I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. And I think this segue is so brilliant that I'm going to have to end the episode here. Because I think we've had a pretty good discussion about... Uh, Problems, primitive schemes, and protocols. And that little taxonomy, which I should probably put down as a blog post at some point. But until then, see you on the next edition of the Cold Dive. This was Lucas, aka Corona Kirby. And I'll see you in the next one. Bye.